Hey everyone, Michael here. Uh, the last couple of weeks have been kind of hectic with uh, the lockdown in effect in Ontario and schools being closed. Um, I'm happy to report that I got my first dose of the COVID vaccine last week, which also knocked me out for about 48 hours. So all that combined means that uh, we weren't able to really line up a high-end interview for you for this week. So instead, what I'm going to do is go through a presentation that I've delivered a couple of times now uh, about cycling aerodynamics to um, uh, a local track club in Toronto here, as well as the Endurance Athlete Summit, which uh, happened, uh, well, in Toronto, but virtually in uh, February of this year. Uh, what this is, is a, a kind of summary of uh, a lot of our findings from all of the conversations that we've had with folks on the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Um, it uh, is targeted at maybe a little bit more of a, an audience newer to the topic of aerodynamics and cycling aerodynamics specifically, uh, but there's still a lot of very useful information. I try to put it in a way that um, that gives you actionable and useful um tips and info, which is something that if you've heard me talk on the show before, um, you know that I value quite a bit, uh, you know, the question of, is is this useful to me? Uh, but before we jump into that, um, I want to give a shout out again to our sponsor, Four Eyes. Uh, as we've mentioned in past episodes, there is a 20% discount code available to you, dear listener. Um, for any factory install power meters that Four Eyes offers currently, that discount code is in the show notes. So take yourself over there and, and take advantage of this. And I'm going to save you even more money uh, by telling you that uh, while Four Eyes offers single-sided and dual-sided power meters, for most applications, you actually don't need a dual-sided power meter. So this is you know a bit of a shock to some of you maybe. Um, but a single-sided power meter as a kind of a gateway into training with power is a really excellent way to go. Um, they're very affordable, especially with this 20% discount code that we're, we're offering you here. Uh, and uh, the really the only difference that between a single-sided and a dual-sided is that you may not get true true power because what a single-sided power meter does is it effectively doubles your power. So if there is a uh, you know, a non-trivial imbalance between your left and your right legs. You may not be getting an absolutely accurate reading of your power, uh, but there are ways to get around that. For example, if you do hop on a dual-sided power meter and you know what the imbalance is, there's a way to assign a, a correction factor to your single-sided power meter. But what's more, it doesn't matter because provided you're training with and racing on the same power meter, the most important thing is repeatability and not accuracy in, in power meter usage. Now, there are cases like what we've described with aerodynamic testing and with metabolic testing where um, you can make the case that, that uh, straight-up accuracy is as valuable as repeatability. But even in those cases, again, provided that you're always using the same power meter to test, even in those cases, you can still do a very fair job uh, of it with a single-sided power meter, um, just knowing that your numbers may be off a little bit again. So if you don't have a power meter, this is your chance. Head over to the Four Eyes website. Uh, use our code for 20% off and get yourself a single or a dual-sided power meter. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. 
and this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. All right, welcome back, everyone. Uh, as you've probably guessed, this is a solo show. Uh, this is the only, the second time I've tried one of these. Uh, it's always an interesting experience. Uh, I really do enjoy having uh, Andrew, of course, uh, and uh, and guests on the show because it's it kind of takes the pressure off. Doing these solo is a little bit more of a of a performance art. But as I mentioned, this is a presentation that I delivered in the past a couple of times, and so I've uh, I've gone through the content, so it shouldn't be too onerous to get through it. So the the place we'll start, and this is something that I often, um, <clears throat> this is a topic or rather a question that I often get from folks who are not as familiar with uh, cycling aerodynamics. Um, and the question is very straightforward is why should I care? Um, and usually that's followed up with something like, Oh, it makes sense for the the pros or the really fast age groupers who are, you know, going 45 kilometers an hour, 40 kilometers an hour in their races. I'm going 30 or I'm going 28 or I'm going 25. And I doesn't, aerodynamics don't really affect me. And uh, to which, of course, I say that is not the case. Uh, and the first part of this presentation goes through a couple of case studies which uh, I just totally made up, where one athlete is, uh, you know, let's say a strong age grouper, um, probably close to the the top of the pack for uh, the average male at three at a three hundred watt threshold power, uh, compared with uh, someone who is much more middle of the pack for male at 200, 200 watt FTP. Um, so taking these two athletes, what I'm going to try to show you is that there is going to be an even bigger difference in terms of total time saved for the athlete who is less strong in this case. So here's the case. We've got Terry at 300 FTP, Terry triathlon, because alliteration's fun. Um, so Terry is, uh, as I said, a fairly strong male athlete. Uh, his CDA uh, when we start is 0.27, which is kind of right in the middle for someone who hasn't really worked to optimize uh, his or her CDA. For someone who is maybe an average size male, that's fairly that's a fairly reasonable CDA. Um, and through optimizing his uh, position and equipment, Terry is able to get that number from 0.27 to 0.23. And remember with aerodynamic drag, folks, it's uh, lower is faster. So 0.23 is a, is a solid number, but it's by no means... Uh, extraordinary. So it's uh, it's entirely possible to get down here. Um, if you talk to you know people who know this better than I do, like uh, Sebastian Averotun, who we've had on the show, uh, he'll say that you know it's even with a larger human, it's possible to go well below 0.23, provided you get all the things right. So 0.23 is not an outrageously ambitious target. That's the point I'm trying to make here. And uh, Terry's racing Arizona because Arizona is a nice fast bike course. Um, so modeling his performance at a 0.27, remember his original CDA, he does the bike split in uh, four hours, 54 minutes. Great. It's a good, it's a good solid age group time. Now, after the intervention, after Terry is able to get down to 0.23, he does the race in four hours, 40 minutes. So that's a, you know, a much pointier performance, saving himself 14 minutes, or if we look at it another way, if Terry's satisfied with his... 454, he can do 
that same bike split in four hours, 54 minutes and produce 39 fewer watts, which potentially gives him a much better run. This is getting a little bit into the weeds here, but suffice to say that Terry can either save 39 watts or he can go 14 minutes faster for the original wattage. Now, let's take a look at Trevor. Trevor is Terry's less gifted brother, let's say, uh, at his 200-watt FTP, because, you know, Trevor Triathlon is still a fun alliteration. We're going to do the same analysis. So he's starting out at 0.27, and he's going to drop down to 0.23, the exact same gain that uh, that Terry was able to pull off, um, except with his lower power. Of course, he's a little bit slower. So Trevor starts out finishing Ironman Arizona in 545 at his 0.27. But if we're able to improve his aerodynamics, he goes down to 529 for a finishing time. So Trevor, even though his power output is lower than Terry's, actually saves 16 minutes versus 14 minutes for Terry. So even though Trevor is slower, because he spends more time out out there on the bike course, he's able to save more time, right? So this matters for everyone. That's the point I'm trying to make. Um, and if, you know, if Trevor was 150 watt FTP, he would end up saving even more time on that bike course. Um, so that's, uh, that's my case for, for why aerodynamics matters, not just for the, the speedy folks, but for everyone. So the next topic I tackle is um, a little bit of a primer on CDA. I threw this uh, term out there um, on the, when I was talking about Terry and Trevor, and most of you probably know what CDA is all about, but uh, it bears ref- defining it in a little bit of detail just so that um, the rest of the presentation makes sense. And we've had experts talk about CDA in the past, but I'm going to try to do a, a kind of a quick summary of what it's all about. So CDA is, uh, roughly speaking, a measure of how aerodynamic an object is. So the lower the number, the better, as I recently mentioned. And uh, CDA is composed of two components. The first is the CD, and then the second is the A. So the CD is the non-dimensional coefficient, which really talks about how slippery an object is. So this has a lot to do with the shape of the object, as well as the surface features on the object. And this is going to become relevant in uh, in a little while. So bear with me. Some shapes are much more aerodynamic than others. The classic, you know, teardrop-shaped aircraft wing is one of the most aerodynamic shapes out there. It has a very low CD, um, whereas something like a sphere or worse yet, a cube have a very unaerodynamic shape. So you don't want to be a sphere or a cube when you're you on your bicycle traveling through the air because that is going to have a very high CD component and therefore a very high CDA. So you want to become much more like an airfoil and much less like a cube. Um, And then if you, of course, think about the way that your triathlon bike or your aero road bike is shaped and the way that aero TT helmets are shaped, they're all shaped to look like airfoils. And there's a very good reason for that. And that is because the CD is lower for these shapes. And then there's the A. The A is a little bit more straightforward. It's, it's, it's more intuitive and it's easier to understand. And that is just the area presented to the wind by you, your bicycle, everything you're wearing, everything that's festooned onto your bicycle. So if, uh, if we're talking about a perfectly windless day and you're traveling through the, you know, you're rolling along, traveling through the air, your A would essentially be, would be defined by the area 
if we looked at you from exactly from the front. So if somebody, if a race photographer snaps a photo of you as you're barreling towards him or her, uh, and then we're able to calculate your area of that barreling shape, that is the A component. So when we're trying to minimize CDA, right, we're trying to minimize both CD and A. And sometimes doing one adversely impacts the other. So it's a little bit of a tricky relationship. But it's important to understand how this um, uh, how this term, how this quantity is derived before we proceed. So next I present a hierarchy of aero needs. Now this is a ripoff of, uh, of a ripoff. Of course, the original was Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. And then uh, Dr. Seiler uh, famously created his hierarchy of endurance needs, which if you haven't seen it is probably the best, um, infographic having to do with endurance training as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so I'm, uh, I'm copying Dr. Seiler who copied Dr. Maslow in, uh, in creating this. And my attempt here is to create a similar pyramid and, uh, I will actually add the slides to the show notes. So folks, if you want to follow along at home, uh, you, f- you feel free to download the slides and, and follow along. But what I'm trying to accomplish with this hierarchy is to uh, establish the most important slash least expensive elements of uh, aerodynamic interventions uh, to kind of the, you know, the most expensive or potentially least important. And by aerodynamic interventions, uh, these these are steps that you can take to reduce that CDA value. So the very at the very bottom, which is the the foundation of our pyramid, and is obviously non-arguably, I would say, the most important component is your position on the bike. And the reason that this is the most important component is because the rider presents anywhere between seventy to eighty percent of the total drag. So you can you can optimize your bike and your wheels and your tires and the stuff on your bike to the nth degree, but if your position is poor and not very aerodynamic on the bike, then those things will still make a difference. They will still make a you know they will still make you faster, but there's a much lower hanging fruit in the equation. Uh, next is kit and accessories. So by kit I mean clothing, and this is interesting because. Um, this is something that until, I would say until fairly recently has been totally overlooked in triathlon. Now, time trialists and especially folks on the track have been ahead of the curve here. So track cyclists. Um, and they've been really thinking about how clothing makes, how clothing affects their performance on the bike. And it has really, I believe, an outsized impact on on your performance. So a fast suit versus a slow suit is a a real difference here. And when I talk about accessories, I'm talking about things uh, attached to your bicycle or your person. So you could have a super fast position and you could have a really fast kit. And now I'm going to make a kind of a, a, maybe a little bit of a silly example, but I've seen this in races, so it's not that silly. And then you put something like a camelback on your back because you know you want ready, readily accessible hydration. Well, you could be the f- most slippery human on the most slippery bike with the best wheels before the Camelback. As soon as you slap that thing on with all of its straps and dangling things, and the fact that it kind of um, you know balloons above your back, you've just you know you you've just uh, tremendously affected your CDA in a in not a very good way. So uh, 
how you attach things to your person and your bike, that also matters. And I'll talk all about all of these things individually in greater detail. I just want to run through them all so that you have a little bit of a summary. So then we come to helmets. Uh, helmets are important, of course, because when you do a header off your bike, it's it could save your life. I've been there and uh, I'm still here to tell the tale. So, uh, you know, wear your helmets, kids. But uh, the right helmet can make a real difference here. Next, I would say is the, the frame and the cockpit. Um, and by cockpit, I mean the front end of the bike. So this is your, your aero bars and your base bar. And uh, like I said, I'll talk a little bit about why these things are important. Um, and then finally, we have wheels and tires. So wheels and tires can, you could argue quite successfully, are, are better bang for buck than frame and cockpit. But uh, it, there's quite a bit of nuance here. And honestly, the, the way that I was looking at this uh, in, in <laughs> constructing my pyramid was looking at something that's done well versus something that's done badly. So there is, you know, there is definitely room to improve wheels and tires, but there's not a huge amount of room. Now, uh, there's one caveat with wheels and tires is that I'm not talking about coefficient of rolling resistance, which is a huge factor for tires. I'm talking about straight up aerodynamics. Um, whereas doing a frame badly and a cockpit badly, there's there's probably more of a penalty there. Uh, versus doing it doing it perfectly. So as promised, we're going to dive into each of the individual components that I just mentioned uh, and talk a little bit more about this. So starting with uh, our bike position and the bike fit. Uh, when Dan Bigham was on the show, who is uh, one of my, my, my favorite aerodynamic experts and again, track background, um, he, he had a quote that, that really, that I really liked. I thought it was kind of, it was on point. It was funny. He said that humans are a mess of cylinders. And, um, this always, this reminded me of the, uh, the Simpsons episode where Marge takes that drawing class and she tries to draw Homer and Homer's bra- broken down into all of his, you know, component geome- geometric parts. Um, and in my slide, I have a, I have a, a screen grab from that Simpsons episode, but uh, yeah, we're a mess of cylinders. And so what is the implication of that fact? When we are on the bike and we are that mess of cylinders, a cylinder is not a very aerodynamic shape. So one of the things we're trying to accomplish in our aerodynamicization, I just made up a word, uh, of the cyclist on the bike, we're trying to either hide the cylinders as much as possible or we're trying to angle the cylinders so that they they don't really look like cylinders to the wind as much as possible. Um, and then this will come into the next uh, bit, but sometimes we're trying to dress the cylinders, but, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. So as I said, um, humans are 70 to 80% of drag and um, the arms and the legs, which are of course those cylinders, present a huge amount of that 70 to 80%. There was a really fun analysis that Andrew did for us um, some time ago, maybe about a year ago, and I'll link to this uh, to that episode in this one. So he took his uh, tri position and did a virtual wind tunnel analysis, which of course he pioneered, and he chopped himself up. He broke himself into the individual components, his arms, legs, feet, head, torso, etc. And uh, he looked at the drag contribution of each of those components. And what was interesting was that, interesting but not surprising, his legs were more than 40% of total drag. So let that sink in for a second. The total drag contribution of 
Andrew's legs. Now, Andrew is not a skinny guy, but he's not, an, you know, he's not uh, Robert Fosterman. His legs were 40%. His arms were 17%. So also not trivial. Also a very large percentage. And this is not just of his body. This is the whole package. Him, his bike, his wheels, everything. So as much as possible, it's important to, as I said, either maneuver these these uh, parts of our body in such a way that they become less draggy or dress them up. Now, there's not much you can do about legs, but there is a little bit you can do about arms. So how do we solve this puzzle of, uh, of becoming as aerodynamic ourselves on the bike as possible? The answer is we got to test it, all right? Uh, and this is something you're going to hear me say a bunch of times in the next little bit. But, um, you know, the old, uh, I call it the slow twinch wind tunnel, where you would take a picture of yourself from the front and from the side and you would post it to slow twitch and you would say, is this faster or is this faster? And there was like, you know, there was a parody video of this made and with good reason because it's kind of, it kind of is a joke because, you know, the slow twitch wind tunnel doesn't work. I mean, you know, you can see somebody riding on their, on their brakes versus riding an arrow and say, yes, the arrow position is faster than you riding on the brakes. I feel comfortable saying that, but you know, small adjustments in your hand position or your shoulder, you know, your elbow width or your head position, it's hard to say what's going to be faster versus anything else. So whenever someone tells you that position A is faster than position B just by eyeballing it, I would take that with a very chunky grain of salt. Moving on to kit, I've already started talking a little bit about this. Um, and kit is really important because it does a couple of things. And by kit, again, I mean the clothing that we wear. The Easy fixes here is anything that flaps. So flapping is 100% your enemy. It is very draggy and very costly. So if your kit is loose and, uh, you know, flutters in the breeze, you need to get a tighter fitting piece of kit. It doesn't matter what it is. Like it, it, the fabric doesn't matter. Nothing else really matters at this point. If if the stuff that you're wearing is flappy and you're interested in performance, I mean, if you're on a, out for a training ride, then by all means, you know, flap away. It's like wearing a drag suit in the pool, right? It's kind of a very similar idea. But if you want to go fast, you want this thing not to flap. So that's the easiest thing. Um, and a quick tip there is um, in triathlon races where we have to wear uh, our bib number, and usually we wear it, uh, you know, attached to a belt. So it's only the top part of the of the number is affixed to something, and the bottom part is sort of, you know, in the breeze, as it were. In most races, the rules say that you only need to wear it on the run. So the easy fix there is do not wear it on the bike. Just don't do it. Put it on when you're, you put it on in T2. Because if you're riding your bike and that thing's flapping around, again, you could have done everything else right and you've just cost yourself a whole bunch of watts just by having this flag in the breeze. The second thing that you you should try to minimize, now this is much harder than not flapping, is to minimize wrinkles in your kit. Um, because even very advanced aerodynamic suits are designed to be worn with as few wrinkles as possible because wrinkles disturb the airflow and they muck up the beautiful calculations and engineering that the, the folks that design the kit have done. And generally, they introduce quite a bit of drag. So not as bad as flapping, but as much as you can, I was going to say iron out the wrinkles. That's not really practical, but uh, pull the wrinkles out of your suit. So when you come out of uh, come out of the water, if it's a wetsuit swim, you take your wetsuit off, especially if it's a long course triathlon and you're, you're not, you know, blowing through transition in 35 seconds, you it really behooves you to take 
you know, 10 seconds to pull your legs down, right? So that you don't have the wrinkles in the legs. Because remember how draggy, how much of a contribution to the total drag the legs were. And then do the same on the arms, straight, stretch them out a little bit, create a little bit of tension in that fabric. Fabric tension is a whole other topic, which I won't talk about here. But create a little bit of tension in the fabric so that you you de-wrinkle yourself as much as possible before you jump on the bike. Because that does actually make a difference and it's very easy to do. And hey, it's free. Um, and then finally, the kind of the, the hardest get here, and it's something that, uh, you know, really smart makers of aerodynamic clothing the world over are... Uh, well, they've been they've been clued into it for a little while. Is that texture matters? So remember when we were recently just talking about? I'm using the royal we. <laughs> when I was just talking about uh, how we're a mess of cylinders, to use Dan's quote, um, there's not much you can do about hiding some of those cylinders, specifically our legs. You know, our legs. The position of our legs on a bicycle is are, is dictated by the bicycle geometry, and unless you're riding a recumbent, there's nothing you can do about hiding your legs. So what you want to do ideally is to dress those legs in uh, in a fabric that re- at least reduces some of that surface drag, um, and that's done through clever fabrics. Um, a little bit outside of the scope of uh, this conversation of how that that gets done, um, and to be perfectly honest, some of it's you know above, you know, goes over my head. Uh, but there's some clever textures out there that, uh, that can reduce the drag on, on these surfaces. The other part that's key is of course your arms because your upper arms, similar to your legs are essentially cylinders, right? And they're cylinders that are mostly in the wind. If you've got a clever, you know, especially high hand, uh, front end position, then you can hide your upper arms to some extent. Uh, but your upper arms are very much exposed to the wind, especially on the the outsides of your upper arms. So again, smart folks have uh, played around with textures on that surface to make you a little bit more slippery. Some easy bets here, other than not wearing your uh, your bib on the bike and uh, pulling out your wrinkles. Um, shoe covers. If you're doing a time trial, no brainer. Shoes are not aerodynamic. They're kind of messy. Um, friend of the show, Pierre Facompre, has done some testing with shoes without covers, and he's got some recommendations for which shoes are faster. But I'm not going to put him on the spot or or steal his thunder here. Um, but uh, a shoe cover, if you can do it, obviously harder to do in uh, in T1. But if you're a time trialist, shoe covers, especially aero optimized shoe covers, are a no brainer. Also not expensive. Uh, calf sleeves as well, or tall socks. Uh, UCI has a a sock rule, so if you're you know UCI time trialing, you're kind of out of luck. Well, above your the midpoint of, along your your tib fib. Um, but, uh, if you're a triathlete, you can, you can cover yourself up from head to toe. So calf sleeves or very tall socks. If you're a triathlete, uh, with again, with, uh, aerodynamic fabric, really good way to go. Also calf sleeves, not expensive. It will save you a little bit, of, a little bit of, uh, Watts, a little bit of power, give you a little bit more speed. Um, here's that, here's that word again. If this was Sesame street, there would be like gongs and stuff going off because uh, test is our, is our word of the day. Um, similar to position, not the same sensitivity, but similar to position. Some suits are going to test faster on some people and slower on other people. Uh, also keep in mind that many of these interventions, these aero interventions, especially suits and suit fabric are speed dependent. So not only do they depend on your position, they also depend on how fast you're going. If you're kind of a middle of the pack triathlete going at 30 kilometers an hour in your race, 
that's a very different scenario to somebody who's like a professional time trialist who's going 50 or even 55 kilometers an hour in a race. So the suit fabrics uh, are going to be different for those two individuals or the ideal suit fabrics are going to be different for those two individuals. And uh, that's something that needs to be tested, right? It needs to be tested on you in your position at your speed if you want to know what's the fastest suit out there. And the cool thing is that there are a lot of options that are springing up. Um, and some of them are quite expensive and some of them are, you know, not not as expensive. <laughs> I mean, none of them are cheap. But uh, if you're thinking about the best way to save, a, to save yourself some time in a triathlon race or in a time trial, getting the right suit is actually a very good value for money proposition. Okay, let's talk about head protection. And except we're not going to talk about the protectee part of it, but uh, the aerodynamics part of it. Uh, helmets, like position, like uh, suits are individual. Uh, so one of the things that really pisses me off is how manufacturers, and I've kind of gotten over it, I suppose, but manufacturers, when they roll out a new helmet, will tell the world that theirs is the fastest helmet they've ever tested. And it's faster than everyone else's helmet in all conditions on Mars, you know, on Mount Everest, you know, in Kona, it doesn't matter where it's the fastest helmet out there. And that just cannot possibly be true because, you know, if you've watched any triathlon races, even if you look at the pros, their positions are wildly different and the way they hold their heads is, you know, there's, there's still quite a bit of uh, distribution there uh, and difference. And if you look at the age group ranks, well, there's a whole world of difference. You got people riding road bikes and people, you know, sitting up a lot and people with very slack aero positions and people who are fairly optimized aero positions. And there's no way that you could say that, you know, there's one helmet that'll, that rules them all in that uh, smorgasbord of, uh, of aerodynamics. So there is no such thing as the right helmet. The, there are uh, a bunch of very good helmets that test well on a lot of people. Um, but again, you know, gongs and stuff, uh, testing is the only way to, to tell. Um, so the only thing that I will say with a high degree of confidence is that I, I would imagine this is on everyone or almost everyone an aerodynamic helmet. So a time trial triathlon helmet is going to be faster in almost every position for almost every human than our traditional road helmet. That's a pretty safe bet. Now, there are some consequences of wearing an aero TT helmet. Uh, namely, you give up a little bit of ventilation and you add a little bit of weight. Um, so the ventilation is, uh, you know, they usually do a pretty good job of it, but it's not going to be as cool as, a, as an aero helmet. So if your race is super hot, maybe something to consider, especially if it's a long, like an iron distance race. Um, and the weight is non-trivial too, because, uh, you know, you're in a typical, uh, triathlon or time trial position, your head is cantilevered, uh, as your body and neck are fairly horizontal. So it's cantilevered at the end of your torso. Um, and it's quite a bit of work for your neck and upper back muscles. And now you're adding a heavy, uh, helmet on top of that. Um, then you could, you know, you could potentially, uh, add a little bit of strain. Now, it, in the scheme of things, it's probably not not tremendous, but there could there could be on the outside there could be upwards of uh, 200 gram difference between a light road helmet and a you know heavyish TT helmet. So 200 grams uh, when it's perched at the very 
end of this moment arm that is your neck at plus head, that could, uh, you know, that, that, that could make a difference. That could definitely make a difference. So something to play around with, but especially something to be tested uh, to determine which one is actually the fastest one for you. Okay, let's talk about wheels. Wheels are fun. Um, there is a fairly good consensus that generally speaking, deeper is faster, both in low yaw conditions, which is either no wind or very low wind or headwind tailwind, uh, as well as, and even more so in high yaw conditions where there's quite a bit of sidewind. Um, so deeper is generally faster. You want to avoid older style uh, wheels with a V profile. Those tend to stall at fairly low yaw conditions, creating very unpredictable steering. Uh, they're they're much less comfortable to ride than modern shaped wheels. In terms of the wheel shape, I think that's mostly converged. Um, and by that, I mean, you know, if you buy an open mold Chinese wheel versus, you know, an Envy wheel, there's not going to be a world of difference in that profile shape. There's probably some. Um, there's other considerations, you know, when you're choosing a wheel. So don't, you know, go out there and buy an Alibaba wheel and then blame me if it cracks. Um, although apparently that, that, doesn't happen very much anymore either, but I'm certainly not an expert in, in talking about that subject. Um, but generally speaking, deeper is faster. We've had uh, Pierre come on and tell us that uh, he finds tri-spoke wheels to be faster than spoked wheels, which there's definitely some evidence to back that up. Um, and uh, of course, a disc rear, uh, and I'm not talking about disc brakes, I'm talking about you know solid disc wheel on the back in any race that allows it is, is a clear win. Uh, unless you're doing an uphill time trial. Um, there's the, there's definitely a weight penalty, but it's offset by the aerodynamic benefits of a disc for sure. So I would run a disc in, in any race, provided that I'm comfortable handling a disc in crosswinds, which I think is actually totally not a not a big lift once you get you know once you get a little bit of experience with with what it feels like um and even in a hilly race uh for example canada man which got postponed to october sadly um quite hilly something like 25 2600 meters of elevation gain in the in an iron distance race i'm gonna run a disc yeah because it's there's still enough flats in there that to offset the extra little bit of mass that i gotta haul up the hills when I do climb. Width definitely matters. And when we're talking about rim width, obviously we're not talking about the depth of it, but we're talking about the width of the the surface that the, uh, you know, the tire sits against, let's say. If you're looking at the wheel head on, how wide that, that wheel is. Uh, and it's the interplay between that width and your frame, especially the fork in the front, because that's really where it matters, as well as the interplay between that and your tire that makes a real difference. Um, I won't get too much into this, but uh, aerodynamically speaking, you don't want the tire to be wider than the rim or too much wider than the rim because of the way that air will flow over it. Um, we had a really good conversation about this with, um, with John Thornham of Flow a little while back. Uh, so check that conversation out. We, he spoke quite a bit more about the, the um, interplay between tire and wheel aerodynamics than I'm going to here, but it's not trivial, the size of tire that you select for your wheels in terms of aerodynamics. Now, again, there's a case to be made that maybe the rolling resistance winds outweigh that. Uh, that's outside of the scope of this conversation. I'm sticking strictly to aerodynamics. Okay, next let's talk about frames um, and front ends. Remember, this was 
interchangeable with wheels, I would say, on my hierarchy as to, you know, what makes the most sense in terms of uh, CDA per dollar. Uh, frames themselves are not a big contributor to aerodynamic drag. I mean, unless you're riding like, a, you know, a, a round tube steel bike or something. It doesn't have to be steel, a round tube bike. But all modern time trial bikes, triathlon bikes, and by modern, I mean last, let's say, I don't know, even 15 years, 10, 10 years for sure, are fairly aerodynamically optimized. There's definitely a difference uh, between the top end stuff and the kind of the, the entry level frames. But in the last, I would say maybe the last three or four years, that has con- that has converged even further. So even an entry level, let's say Cervelo P series bike, um, is not going to lose very much to their top of the line PX bike in terms of aerodynamic drag. I mean, it's uh, uh, you're going to pay a ten thousand dollar premium for something that really isn't going to give you very much of a performance advantage. So frames themselves are a very expensive way to buy speed. The only thing I will say about frames, which does make a difference, is that um, probably the most useful intervention uh, in frames recently, especially these higher-end frames, is their integration of storage. So, you know, if you, the, the PX that I just picked on, what it does really, really well, and it's a cool looking bike. I, I think it's, I think it's great. Um, what it does really well is design in, into the design of the, build in to the design of the bike, the athlete's ability to store tools and nutrition and hydration without negatively affecting uh, aerodynamic drag. Remember what I said earlier about if you wear a camelback, you're kind of giving up a lot. Uh, similarly, if you've got, you know, jersey pockets stuffed full of energy bars and gels and they're peeking out or you have, you know, you have them tucked into your your legs and peeking out at the bottom of your the hem of your uh, bib shorts or your tri-suit legs, uh, that's not very aero. So being able to hide all that stuff in uh, in frame cavities and still having good access to it, that's a real win. And the other thing that uh, modern frames, but even more so sort of the aftermarket uh, component folks have been doing really well is designing cockpits that are both aerodynamic and extremely adjustable. So uh, the cockpits are, of course, the, you know, the bits that you steer the bike with. So this would, be, would include the base bar as well as the, you know, whatever riser plus um, elbow cups plus extensions. And certainly aerodynamically they've become they've gotten a lot cleaner the cables are hidden all of it's internally routed so that's cool uh that there's some there's some wins to be had there but honestly the most important innovation recently in this space has been the ease with which these are adjustable so if you look at a lot of the modern um you know top end bikes one of their selling features is that they have a front end or, the, or a cockpit that can be adjusted um very very easily so the PX bikes have this. They have a mono post that slides up and down, um, and it has a very nice way to adjust it. Uh, the other bar that comes to mind is Tri-Rig's Alpha One bar, which is very elegant in its ability, in its adjustability. Um, and if you kind of rewind and think about what I said at the beginning about how the the position of the the pilot of the bike makes the biggest difference. The ability to easily adjust that position is a huge win in the big picture aerodynamic um, pursuit. So if you go back to Cervelo's previous superbike, the P5, the original P5, it, it's still one of the fastest bikes out there. I mean, it's not giving up very much, if anything, 
to the new P, the, the new PX, but that thing was impossible to fit and it was impossible to adjust. It was just because of the way everything was routed and it had proprietary everything and it was not at all adjustable. It was basically meant to be fitted on a fit bike. Uh, like a retool or or similar, and then have the actual P5 be built from the fit coordinates. That was the way that that bike was designed to do, uh, to uh, be assembled and be fitted. It is exceedingly difficult to make field adjustments to that bike, so testing that bike is tricky. That's the uh, that was the drawback. Whereas the modern iteration is much much more user friendly. So uh, we're getting close to the end. The last thing I want to talk about is testing. Uh, <laughs> this is of course been the kind of the word of the day, as I said, uh, and testing is important. And I hope that by now, uh, everyone listening to this can appreciate why. And the, the kind of the easiest way to summarize that is because in aerodynamics, there are very many cases where the answer is, it depends, you know, is a faster than B? Well, it depends. It depends on C, D, X, and Y and everything else. So testing the position is, is essential if you want to find something that's truly the fastest. And if you're, you know, if you're the performance oriented time trialist or triathlete or even cyclist, testing is the only way to give you information that reflects reality. Um, the good news is that testing has become much simpler than uh, we, what it used to be when your only option for testing was uh, finding a wind tunnel and paying a whole ton of money to get access to it. In North America, we really don't have very much. I think uh, uh, I could be totally wrong on this. So if I am, please, uh, please correct me. But there's the in Canada, I don't know of any cycling wind tunnels. Um, I know folks have tested in the, the specialized wind tunnel, obviously, in California. And then there's the I believe it's the A2 tunnel in Arizona. Those are the two that come to mind. Um, the UK has got done a much, much better job. I think there are a lot of opportunities to test in, in the UK and in Europe in general. Um, although, I, am I even allowed to say that anymore? Sorry, Brexiters. Um, but, uh, certainly in, in the UK, there, there are lots of opportunities to test. Um, but it's still expensive. Wind tunnels are still expensive. There's a lot of advantages to them, but they still cost a, a, a ton of money. Um, you can do tests on the track. Uh, so track testing is a, is a popular way to go. It's a controlled environment. It's easier to, uh, tease out little gains. Um, there is testing that you can do at home. Right, the uh, the four eyes formerly stack virtual wind tunnel that Andrew uh, pioneered. That's an awesome way to do it. So that's where you you know you use a piece of software, and now it's down to your phone. You don't even need a special scanner. So modern iPhones and modern iPads, you can uh, take a three D image of yourself and then send it to the good folks at Four Eyes, and uh, they'll give you uh, you know a, a report as to what your aerodynamic drag looks like um, based on your position. Uh, and then there's field testing and field testing is uh, going actually out on the open road. So it's the, it's the testing that most closely represents reality, uh, but it, it definitely has some limitations. And with field testing, you can use an aero sensor, something like uh, Noceo or Aerolab. Um, and uh, there are also sensorless systems like the, uh, the Aerotune system that we talked about in the last couple of episodes. And then you can go out and test all the things that I've talked to you about here. Position, um, kit, helmet, placement of stuff on your bike, frame, wheels, and then see what actually works best for you. And uh, that's, as I said, the only way to know for sure. 
so the, all of this stuff makes me really excited because it's uh, we finally have tools that are within reach for you know the average cyclist. You don't need to be a member of a of a pro team or or a pro triathlete with a with a good sponsor to have access to these tools. And so it is uh, becoming much easier for people like me, people like you, potentially to to get answers to these questions and really save quite a bit of time in your races. Um, certainly one of the easier way to, to get to buy time is to have your position tested and to run through a few options, a few different helmets, a few different suits, um, some positional changes. Uh, and of course the positional changes have to be done in context with a, with a bike fit because you don't want to compromise, uh, performance or comfort. Um, well, I mean, if your race is really short, maybe you do want to make some of those sacrifices in, in, uh, the pursuit of aerodynamics. But uh, all taken as a, as a big picture, you can really make some uh, some important improvements. So that wraps up my presentation. Uh, thank you very much for listening to it. And uh, if you want to go through my slides, I will make them available on the website. There'll be a link to them in the show notes as well. And uh, you can follow along if you like. Mind you, there's not a ton of content on the slides themselves that I didn't present. But uh, if you'd like to have a look, then uh, by all means. Um, before we go, I want to say thank you to uh, a couple of folks who have submitted reviews and uh, comments on the show. Uh, that always is very much appreciated. And uh, if you're a listener and you haven't given us a review or a rating yet, please consider doing so. This review comes from a listener with the handle Dodgers number 42, and it's titled Sports Science Distilled. Add to your podcast list. I always look forward to the new Endurance Innovation podcast when they come out. Andrew and Michael do an excellent job of breaking down complex research into an easy-to-understand form. They provide both the data and science that backs up the findings, as well as clarifying the topics to make them actionable for any endurance athlete looking to improve. The shows are the right combination of nerdy and entertaining. I highly recommend this podcast. Well, thank you. That, that's, uh, that's really kind. And the other note comes from a listener called Tom, who says, uh, and this is in relation to our show with uh, Costas Georgis about music in uh, training. Tom says, really enjoyed this episode. Thanks much. Now to convince myself not to use music once in a while on my Zwift workouts. And Tom, I totally feel you there. I, uh, I have uh, good intentions and I try to, at least with uh, endurance workouts, to... Uh, occupy my brain in a different way and to listen to podcasts for example or to you know watch youtube videos that i've uh, i've been saving up for with instructional stuff um but then eventually especially with longer longer workouts i will just default to listening to music so tom i totally understand where you're coming from thank you very much for the comment so that'll do it for us uh thank you very much for listening Andrew will be back next week and we have an excellent guest lined up as well thanks again